Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. As with his breakout debut novel, Memorial, Brian Washington's second novel, Family Meal, returns to Houston as its geographic backdrop, a city of intense growth, immense diversity, and enormous change. The novel speaks with three voices, the focal characters of the novel Cam, Kai, and TJ, each of whom is haunted by his own ghosts. In the case of Cam, that ghost takes a tangible physical form in the return of his dead boyfriend, Kai. Kai visits Cam with questions from their past, unresolved quarrels and disappointments. And when he's not there as a ghostly body, Cam dreams of a thousand ways in which he might have died, other than the true horror of the violence that took him from the world. Cam's unmoored life, parents lost at an early age, intertwines his adolescence and coming of age with TJ, whose family takes him in, bringing him to their family meals. We only understand TJ's anger at Cam when the narrative moves to give him his own voice, his own struggles and searching for intimacy and connection. And such is the pleasure and power of Family Meal, a Rashomon tale of queer trauma and queer joy, told from three different but entangled perspectives, each looking for the root of their ghostly hauntings. Family Meal takes up issues of drug and sex addiction, eating disorders, and police violence, but with an intense empathetic spirit that values the living even as it remembers the dead. As one character tells us, sometimes the best we can do is live for each other. It's enough, even if it seems like it isn't. Brian Washington is the author of the previous novel, Memorial, and a collection of short stories, Lot. He is also a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 winner, a New York Public Library Young Lions Award recipient, an Ernest J. Gaines Award recipient, an International Dylan Thomas Prize recipient, a Lambda Literary Award recipient, and many more. He is a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. Welcome to Burned by Books, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on, Chris. Means a lot. I, I said to you before we started recording that I have been just dying to get to interview you since Memorial, which was a book that I, I loved very much. And, and Family Meal, I feel very similarly about. Family Meal is a ghost story, and Kai, who is dead when we start the novel, returns in various forms, 
ghostly and then in first-person narration. Why did you decide to have an actual haunting in the novel? And what were the complications of bringing a ghost into an otherwise realist work? That's a good question. I think from the outset, I knew that I wanted to write a narrative about a friendship, namely the friendship between Cam and TJ. And I also knew that one of the novel's inciting incidents would be the death of Cam's partner. But it was very important to me that the narrative not be, I suppose, predominantly weighed by the trauma surrounding the circumstances of that particular death, which is to say violence enacted by the state, violence enacted by way of white supremacy. I think that that is a necessary narrative. It's a needed narrative, but it was not the entirety of the narrative that I was looking to write. I wanted to write a narrative about queer friendship. I wanted to write a narrative about care. And it had to be possible for me to talk about each of these things simultaneously in a way that they were working with one another without necessarily superseding one another. So the workaround that I ultimately settled on was allowing Kai, the character who is named or namely deceased at the novel's chronological outset to be an active presence, to have autonomy, to have agency as far as real time in the narrative is concerned. This for me felt like one word in which to not shy away from the emotional realities of these characters, the structural realities of the characters and the world in which they live, but also allowing them to have the benefit of the doubt, allowing them the grace to change their minds, the grace to not have predetermined futures. Each of these things was really important to me. And writing Kai as an active present tense entity in the narrative felt like one way of approaching it. Mm, that's really nicely said. The title alerts us to the importance of food and, and cooking for the novel, but meals and their personal and collective meaning are incredibly complicated for these characters. For one thing, Cam is struggling with an eating disorder in which he often feels out of control. But on the other hand, <clears throat> meals made by loved ones in acts of caring are transformative for the characters. Does the traditional story of sharing meals as a almost cure-all miss how complicated food and eating are for many people? I think it can be off the mark. I am hesitant to say that it's redundant or that it's reductive because it is a necessary narrative for quite a lot of folks. It's an important narrative for quite a lot of folks. But I also feel that there is a way in which Meals or the sharing of a meal can be implicitly and explicitly solely relayed as having a positive impact upon the participants in that meal sharing without alluding to any of the complications or any of the challenges that could be inside of or surrounding the preparation of that meal, what it took to bring each of the parties to the table, the pleasure that's being garnered or not being garnered by the entities that are participating in that meal. If the meal is being shared, then presumably there was some labor behind it. The question of the balance of that labor is one that I think is an essential one. Anytime that we're talking about a meal that is being shared, who is taking on that toil, 
are they being valued for it or is it just sort of implicitly understood that that is their role to what extent are they able to partake in the pleasure of sharing a meal if we're talking about food if we're talking about sustenance i think we're also talking about bodies the way in which the participants relate to their own bodies and the bodies around them the understandings that they may have garnered by way of lived experience by way um, their respective socializations as far as like how a body can be, how a body can approach sustenance or which sustenance is appropriate for which bodies and which isn't appropriate for which bodies. All of these things, I think, are just as important as the positive under and overtone surrounding the community that can be built surrounding a meal or the self-knowledge that can be guarded surrounding a mm. meal. So it's really important to me to find different ways to extract these different tangents from scenes in which folks are sharing sustenance or from scenes in which folks are really thinking through what sustenance means to them. Well, you certainly have that so much throughout the novel, and you get at the the tensions and the complexities around the labor around food, which is literalized in the in the bakery scenes, which are which are very wonderful. And also in the ways in which, even though painful at times, food is this uh, essentially a thread that connects a lineage of people and traditions together as they uh, enact a meal and share it and take pleasure in it. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the, that lineage and that connection works for Cam, Kai, and TJ differently. Yeah, I think that... I knew, again, from the outset that I wanted to write a narrative about friendship and queer friendship specifically, but it felt fascinating to approach that question knowing that each of these characters, whilst they have love for one another, may not necessarily be entirely adept at showing that love or illustrating that love or distributing that love for one another. It harkens back to one of the questions that I was circling around at the outset of writing the novel for queer folks, particularly younger queer folks from marginalized backgrounds, which is to say queer folks of color, but queer folks writ large uh, in the States at this moment, there isn't and there aren't an abundance of models and arts for how to be, particularly as if like you're particular station of like marginalization is exacerbated when the models that do exist or the ones that are visible in media or otherwise for just how to be a person, how to be okay in so many spaces throughout the States may not necessarily correlate with an individual sense of who they are or who they want to be. So it poses a fair an interesting question or what was an interesting question to me and my friends where if you don't have a map or you don't have a series of landmarks for what queer friendship can look like in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s what a relationship with a partner or partners could look like in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and if the models and arcs and illustrations that you do have don't feel as as if they're relevant to your own circumstances how do you progress and what grace is allowed for yourself and others as you inevitably make missteps and not missteps 
from a binary standpoint, which is standard good or bad, but this steps in the sense that it might not be right for you specifically, or it might not be right for you uh, within a given context. So this notion of the bakery and this notion of Cam and Kai and TJ cooking for one another felt like one way in which they could utilize one of the languages that they do have, that they did have to varying degrees, of course. TJ is someone who grew up in the kitchen, so to speak. Someone who's very familiar mm-hmm. with his squares. Cam has a similar background, although it's slightly different. Kai is someone who grew up in a kitchen, but not a professional kitchen. So even though their foundations as far as this language of the three is concerned is, you know, similar, there's a foundation there. Um, they're slightly different and that those slight differences felt really important to emphasize as they go about circling around this question of how to distribute care and what care looks like for them and what concessions they're willing to make to match the care that the folks in their lives may need in lieu of the care that they feel they should be distributing because that rift uh, between the two felt and feels like an important journey for any individual to make the same that they hope these very specific characters. Mm-hmm. Food and sex are powerfully intertwined uh, in the novel, often in precarious ways. For Cam, the loss of his parents and partner turns food into a profound signal of loss and loneliness, and food is then in some ways replaced by sex. In Cam's case, it's an addiction to anonymous sex and lots of it. How did you want to play at the intersection of food and sex as pleasure, comfort, and pain? Well, it was important for me to allow each of the characters, whether Cam, I, TJ, Noel, or anyone else in the narrative, as much grace as possible to change their minds. And as much, I suppose, autonomy as possible to make what could be perceived of as mistakes or decisions that might be detrimental to their personal situations. I was very wary of ascribing any particular character, whether it's Cam's challenges with intimacy and his challenges with various substances or TJ's own challenges with intimacy and his valuation of self or Kai's mental health situation as being good or as being bad or as being right or as being wrong, because that didn't feel as if though it were structurally useful, but also it didn't feel as if though it were emotionally honest in the sense that we may be navigating challenges with our mental health, with intimacy, with substances, with our bodies, without a clear sense of whether it's right or wrong in a particular moment or whether it's good or bad in a particular moment. The moment just is when you are in the midst of that particular moment. So trying to allow each of the characters as much grace as possible to fall into challenging times, to recover, so to speak, from those challenging times, to give voice to why they're making the decisions that they make or that they have made in the narrative is something that felt really important to me. But from a structural standpoint, sustenance and intimacy felt as if the, they were really useful shorthands for me and Fan and Neil because to some extent, 
they have a role in each of our lives, which is to say any reader has a relationship to sustenance and to intimacy and the extent to which those entities preoccupy the sort of daily revolutions and the, I suppose, veracity and which they're thinking about sustenance or intimacy can vary from reader to reader, of course, as our context shift from moment to moment and person to person. But nonetheless, they have a role in each of our lives. So those two entities were useful for me as entry points to tackle other conversations, right? If I broke this conversation surrounding sustenance, surrounding sharing a meal, I could segue into a conversation surrounding bodies or being okay, or broach a conversation surrounding intimacy, surrounding the sex that the characters are having. I can enter a conversation, I think, a bit more smoothly with, you know, what I was trying to do with this book as far as what it takes for a particular character to feel comfortable, what and how pleasure can be conceived of for each of these characters in the journey toward accepting that pleasure is something that each of these characters wants, each of them means to varying degrees, even if it looks differently from how they thought it may have appeared in their lives, or even if it shifts from how it may have appeared or felt from the first page to the last page. So trying to find different ways, I think, to approach each of these questions without necessarily coming up with concrete answers or conclusions is something that felt really important to me and feels really important to me when I'm working through any project, particularly using. The, the Houston of Family Meal, much like the real Houston, is peopled by an immense diversity of background and experience, and your characters are wonderful mixes, Thai, Korean, Japanese, Black, Latino. These ethnicities and their food traditions meld into one another. What I found amazing was how little you describe the physical characteristics of your characters. We know what they look like, often based on reactions from others, with only occasional descriptions. It felt like you were doing this in, a, in part to destabilize expectations for how race is seen and understood. Could you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, I think that for me, when it comes to character descriptions, trying to give them as much of the benefit of the doubt as possible. I think that there can be a way in which an author approaching a character of difference or an author approaching a character of any stratum of marginalization emphasizes or harps upon or really underlines that particular degree of marginalization mm -hmm. in order to either make a point or to make it abundantly clear that this character is different or someone of difference within that author's particular world. But on the one hand, that's not particularly structurally useful for me. And on the other, the locales that I'm setting this narrative in, whether in Houston, whether in Osaka, whether in Los Angeles, these are places that are largely construed of difference that are run by different places whose variants and diversity, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, sexual diversity, they would imbue these particular locales, these particular worlds with the energy that they do have. And in a world in which difference is commonplace and understood, 
as being very much the norm world in which a majority would be that would be the variance, you know, that would be the point of difference in these particular places. It didn't feel useful for me at the line level to underline, to emphasize how different or how marginalized or how special any of these characters were in relation to one another solely because or my way of their marginalization. The characters who are moving through the world, there are folks who are doing the best that they can in one capacity or another. And so many, I suppose, of the descriptions that I gravitate toward as a reader, as someone who's like a member of the audience, so to speak, rely less on physical descriptors or what can be codified as visible descriptors so much as how a person occupies space, how they move through a room, how they relate to their body, how they relate to other bodies and the context, I think, surrounding those interactions could be just as illustrative of who a character is and how they are as any particular physical descriptor, which is to say the way in which TJ occupies a queer space is going to be quite different from the way in which Cam occupies a queer space. The manner in which they relate to their own bodies and the bodies around them in those particular spaces can be just as, I suppose, visceral and as visual as any concrete physical descriptor that I could conjure or that I could mm. come up with. So trying to be not even necessarily flexible, but create as close as possible as an experience for the reader and relaying who these characters are in lieu of my simply telling a mm. reader a character's physical descriptors, their height, uh, their weight, uh, their race, um, how much space they're occupying in a given uh, scene or in a given situation feels, for me, as close or much closer to creating like a simulacrum of lived experience as possible and a little, uh, you know, just a set of details that I'm giving yeah. the reader or the audience to run with. I thought this was particularly the case with Noel. Would you describe them as a non-binary character? Yeah, Noel's non-binary. And who begins working at uh, TJ's family's bakery in, in the way that you're describing this sort of light description in order to allow for the real presence of the person to mean something beyond kind of random physical details. It seemed really important that this was happening with a non-binary character, uh, refusing readers' desire to kind of overlap maybe certain random physical qualifiers with a person's actual experience of their gender. And I, I wondered if you would speak to Noelle a little bit. Yeah. They are a character who is important as far as like TJ's specific character development is concerned. Much of TJ's arc, much of the arcs of each of these characters, but probably particularly TJ, is uh, figuring out that he, TJ, has worth and that TJ does have value outside of what pleasure he's able to conjure for others outside of the sort of model or arcs of pleasure and value that he had been privy to for much and most of his life. 
in all and quite a lot of ways serves not necessarily as a foil to the other relationships that TJ has navigated, but as a person who is simply present for TJ, who is simply present in their own lives, and one who is living an arc and one who is existing in a model that TJ just hasn't come across before. Uh, TJ simply hasn't spent time, extensive time, platonic time, romantic time with a character who seems to be as comfortable with themselves as it all is. And it felt interesting to me in a narrative that was, and is like really concerned with arcs and models and how characters relate to one another and don't to have two very different people just bounce and vibrate off of one another whilst still finding attraction toward one another. And so TJ's relationship with Null as it progresses from one that is existing like within the confines of a place of business to one that is slightly more casual, slightly more platonic to one that has beginnings of a more romantic foundation felt and feels as if though it is an instance of TJ just learning more about himself and an instance of Null's learning more about themselves which felt and feels to me just really rare for one thing to yeah, spend time absolutely. with queer characters who were simply learning more about themselves and mm -hmm. uh, reacting uh, to what has been ascribed um, upon them or in... Yeah, we really react to, to Noelle learning about themselves, like, yes. in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that felt... Uh, important to me just like at a line level but also you know again just like as a reader as a member of an audience and narratives that I really hold dear and probably more specifically the relationships inside of the narratives that I really hold dear are ones in which the characters are very palpably learning about themselves and their desires and their hopes and their fears, not only for themselves as individuals, but also for their friends, their partners, their communities in real time. But the same as I am, uh, narratives in which I'm having these epiphanies alongside these characters and the author is structuring not only just the prose, but scene by scene in such a way that I'm necessarily being told explicitly what to think or how to see these characters but i'm in the moment as much as each of these characters are those are you know the sorts of narratives that really stick with me and that you know really challenge me and make me want to spend time with them so trying to emulate that this particular relationship uh, between these characters as much as possible um felt uh, like a really uh important goal uh for me and the relationship between tj and Mel. Hmm. Kai's two brief sections of first-person narrative move between Baton Rouge, Houston, and Osaka. Osaka was an important touchstone of your last novel, Memorial. Can you talk about Japan's important to you, importance to you as an American writer and as someone who's spent time there? And why did you want to return there in this novel, if only for a moment? 
Yeah, I think that for me, the preface that I would give is that so much of my foundational language, as far as literary fiction is concerned, was construed and was made up of the works of Japanese women in translation, which is to say the work of Shoko Okawa or the work of Shoko Tawada or Miyako Kawakami or Hiromi Kawakami or Shibasaki uh, Tomoka or Yoshimoto Banana. Um, these were folks whose worlds I spent time in and alongside whilst I was just beginning to come up with or begin to understand, honestly, like the grammar that I would utilize or that I would maybe want to utilize in my own narratives. And those, I suppose, creators, those authors, the way in which they navigate narrative would continue to just have like an indelible impact upon how I conceive of narrative, how I conceive of story. So that is after that particular answer, but also as someone who has gotten to spend a good amount of time in Osaka and with someone who has been able to be the beneficiary of community in that city. I am endlessly fascinated with the ways in which communities are formed, even in the midst of, and in some cases explicitly because of the differences inside of those communities. Osaka is just such a vibrant city. It's a very specific city it is a travel hub it's a place in which you have many different entities cultural socioeconomic mixing with one another bouncing off of one another and sometimes lingering and sometimes immediately departing but it's also a city that i see quite a lot of parallels to and from just in my own specific experience alongside cities like houston or alongside cities like los angeles other entities that are run on the difference that they're composed of and in and around. And I think that my inability in a lot of ways to wrap language around what is so fascinating about that to me is what results in so many of these narratives in which characters are spending time in these places in very specific circumstances in varying contexts, I think. One way of approaching this question of what community is or can mean to myself has been attempting to craft narratives in which characters are also circling around that particular question and shifting the context from city to city or from moment to moment to hope to, you know, unravel or to reveal just a little bit more for a different contour of that question and again without necessarily looking to answer it because i don't know that that would have a lot of value for myself or anyone else but in continuing that question or continuing that conversation and folks in some ways that someone else will come along and pick up that particular tangent of that question or that tangent of that conversation add to their um given their own specific context or their own specific uh circumstances trying to create as, as wide and you know as vibrant of a fabric surrounding questions of community and care and where this is possible. I love hearing you talk about Osaka and and also writing about it. I I lived outside of Osaka for a little oh. over a, a year and and we also share a, a love for for many of those Japanese women 
women writers that you talked about. I spent a lot of time um, with some that you mentioned, and wow. also uh, Enchi Fumiko, and um, and I and I was really uh, one of one of the parts that delighted me is when Kai misses the last train in in Osaka, uh, and and it's I, I I recall doing the same thing and sort of realizing that, that there wasn't a lot of other options other than walking or doing something, and that's so different from a lot of uh, big cosmopolitan cities. Yeah, it's it, it, the specificity of that particular locale, Osaka specifically. Uh, there's a warmth in that particular city. There is a vibrancy, it was a gentleness that I just, me and my own specific experience that I've been privy to. But it is also one that is, I think, just like really difficult to describe and like really difficult uh, to contain and not something that i have seen uh semblances of in cities in the west that i've you know spent time in i've seen similarities for sure and i spent quite a lot of time thinking through what those similarities look like for me specifically and how they function and how they shift uh, as the moment shifts as my own comfort in these particular spaces shifts but trying to bring language to, you know, this what I think is just like really special about these places is, is one of the reasons uh, that, you know, I want to spend time uh, in these spaces on uh, the page. It, it's impossible to miss the beauty of the the formal uh, play you have with uh, visuals in, in the novel and uh, almost exclusively around Kai's narratives, if I'm not mistaken, but they are of cherry blossoms and photos from from Japan, I assume Osaka. But could you talk a little bit about how they ended up in there and how they operate as a, a break from linearity of, of narratives and an offering of another kind of way of, of thinking about place and time? Yeah, for sure. I, I knew that I wanted, or for the outset at least, I knew that I wanted the narrative to have two um, distinct voices. And as my time in the generative uh, process of writing the book continued, uh, that became three um, distinct voices. But a challenge remained for how to distinguish these voices from one another on the page uh, in lieu of my simply telling uh, a reader that Cam is talking and that TJ is talking and how I now Kai um, is talking. Um, it felt important to me to emulate as much as possible the differences in the manners of how these characters approached the world, how they approached relationships, how they approached the observations that they were making about one another, their circumstances, themselves. And for me, it feels useful at a structural level and at a line level to utilize as much of the literal page as possible in illustrating the differences between voices when I have multiple voices in close proximity to one another, which is to say the amount of white space that is present in Cam's narrative is very different from how white space is utilized in Kai and TJ's narratives, the way in which TJ moves from moment to moment, just to say organized in a numerical fashion, isn't present in Kai or Cam's iteration of the narrative. And Kai's point 
of difference from a structural level was the use of photographs of utilizing a visual element. Uh, for me, this felt like another way, like a useful way to bring him to the page specifically in a similar fashion to how the structural shifts from Cam to TJ bring more of themselves to the page, partly because in a narrative that is so concerned with the ways in which characters are learning more about themselves and growing into themselves and deciding or attempting to decide what it means for them to be okay, having their particularities present in both in that both like the line level and the sort of like the visual page felt important, but also partly because utilizing a visual felt and feels like another way of establishing tone or establishing ambiance or establishing mode in a way that is related to a several page run on, for example, that's utilized in Cam's section or related to quite short and circumspect sections and moments in TJ's section that are separated from number to number, but still distinct in and of itself. So trying to find different ways to clearly and thoroughly distinguish these characters and their voices from one another whilst showing the ways in which they're connected felt really important to me. When I was drafting fan reveal and particularly on the back end, when I was trying to figure out which murders went where, um, how much white space was separating these moments from one another, which moments or which scenes or which observations would suffice for a five or six word section on Lou uh, serving as part of a larger moment or a larger section. And that, I suppose, like alchemy, so to speak, or that shifting of the literal page from character to character and voice to voice, uh, just like another way of allowing the reader to be present in the narrative, like to experience the ways in which these characters were navigating the world, were navigating their senses of self and just play through. It was also fun, like that, that bit. Um, I'm sure it was. was writing, you know, particularly like a novel that was challenging in a lot of different worlds. Um, this was one of the avenues that was just like a lot of fun to you know, play around and try to uh, figure out and tear it in my end. Speaking of fun, as it happens, I've been cooking some of your Japanese recipes from the New York <laughs> Times, <laughs> including the curry rice and uh, okonomiyaki. And I wonder how you got involved in this project. It's it's really um, so fun to see you there on that section as well. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I was, uh, I'm not neat columnist anymore. I was, uh, I uh, left that position as uh, uh, early October. So I think like just before the book was published. Well, it was a set of happy circumstances and which uh, the Times reached out. Um, and they asked if I would be interested uh, that you call them this like a really interesting entity inside of the times magazine and that you have four columnists, uh, that are writing, uh, once uh, a month, each of them about a particular dish and they are carrying, um, that 
narrative wherever it leads them. If they would like to introduce, you know, the sociocultural context around that particular dish, if they would like to introduce uh, their personal history surrounding a particular dish, if they would like uh, to write a narrative that is introspecting the two for that particular dish, you know, they can do so at their leisure. And what makes it particularly interesting is that it is understood that that role is only held for a certain amount of time, a couple of years, probably. Ah, that was, that okay. was there for That's two years. And that, I think, creates a sort of energy surrounding that particular column role and that there's an understanding that there's going to be variance from month to month or from year to year, but you also have new energy, so to speak. Uh, that is able to bring, you know, their particular experiences uh, to the space in lieu of hearing, you know, from the same voice uh, for the four or five, six uh, years. So it was a really uh, interesting position to hold from a structural standpoint in that I was challenged to condense the, I suppose, like emotional weight of a particular experience or the emotional weight of a particular description of an experience into 700 words or so, or in some cases, in 800 uh, words. Yeah. But as an exercise, um, it was really useful because uh, it forced me. Uh, to really consider the weight of an individual word, the weight of an individual passage when I only had so much time, so little time to paint a picture or to provide context or to attempt to create or write a passage that moved from moment to moment and that moved emotionally from one moment to the next uh, in the sense in which you know if you're if you're reading like a print to tea and then you don't really have time to turn the page before it's over um so in, in that sense uh it was a really uh useful exercise uh from a narrative uh standpoint and an interesting place and space to spend time in for a few years hmm uh, before I let you go, one of the my listeners' favorite things is hearing about recommended books and reading from the authors that I interview. And I wonder if you might have a couple of recommendations for us. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I will give four. Um, one is uh, Hangman by uh, Maya Binion, uh, which came out um, very recently. Uh, another is a novel called Walking Practice by Dolpi uh, Men, and it was translated by uh, Victoria Cottle. Um, another novel is Minor Detail by Adania Shipley. Um, and the last one I would give is Happy Stories Mostly by Norman Erickson Pasaribu, and that was translated by uh, Tiffany Sapp. Um, each of these narratives, I think, is really adept at conjuring emotional weight, really flexible, really structurally demanding, but still each of them deeply approachable, which I think you know, for myself, like it is a goal, like a really hard to reach mm -hmm. goal, but also illustrated and demonstrated in, in each of these works and in, in a way that is just deeply laudable, but also um, remaining just really solid reads. Well, those sound great. I haven't read any of them, so I'm excited to take a look myself. And I just can't uh, recommend enough for my listeners Family Meal, the second novel by Brian Washington. Thank you for coming on, Brian. It was a real pleasure to get to chat. Oh, Lord, yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. It, it means a lot. And thank you for the thoughtfulness and like, generosity of your questions. It's a good day. Well, thank you for your work. Well, that's all for me for now. Thanks to Brian Washington for agreeing to come on the show. 
It was a dream get for me. I've been dying to talk with him since his first novel, Memorial. You can find links to purchase Family Meal and Memorial, along with all of Brian's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.